All right, this is Hi-Fi Nation for Slate Plus listeners. This is Barry Lamb. I'm here with Stephen Metcalf, who is the co-host of Slate Culture Gab Fest, Slate's, Slate's critic at large. Hi, Stephen. Welcome hey, to, Barry. Welcome to Vassar. I'm so excited to be here. Both uh, Hudson Valley residents we are. Not yeah, that far, right? Yeah, not far at all. It's probably about an hour north of here. Great. And we're going to do a few more of these over the course of the season uh, on episodes that Stephen would love to talk about. And hopefully I'll be able to come on the Slate Culture Gab Fest for... Uh, we would love it. Great. We would love it. Yes. All right. So, Stephen, um, this is we're going to be talking about the episode that I've just released, which I'm titled. I've decided to title "No Offense." Uh, do you find yourself, after listening to it, uh, sympathetic uh, more to the Australian position or the American position about free speech? Well, I have to confess that um, I went in highly sympathetic to the Australian position um, and suspicious of free speech absolutism. Uh, in the U.S., um, and I came out mostly affirmed in my um, preconceptions. Uh, I was very interested to hear about the difference between these two ways of framing the idea of speech and how two different societies work out rights as they compete with one another, which is, of course, where the rubber hits the road uh, in a discussion like this one. But at the end of the day, I'm very, very sympathetic to the idea of um, moral injury against the dignity of the person um, as articulated, um, or at least as defended by something like a less than absolutist notion of, of protected speech. I would say that I personally went into it much more sympathetic to the American position. Uh, and I remember feeling that part of it, it might have to do with a, you know this kind of libertarian tendencies kind of rebellious teenagers kind of have. Yep. And I sometimes, sometimes I think a lot of American... Uh, views about absolute rights comes from a very teenage outlook. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like for instance, you know, just libertarianism, I think, in general, is a very teenage male, I, I would say, mm -hmm. way of considering, like, don't step on me, don't cross over. Yeah, don't tell me what to do, and don't impose a norm on me. Yeah, don't meddle with my conscience. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, um, and I came away more sympathetic to the Australian position. And and um, I wouldn't say that I would advocate for something like this in the U.S., but the idea that the, the moral norms that govern speech are the same as the moral norms that govern action, mm -hmm. right? If there's going to be an injury, the uh, there's going to be an injury. And, and uh, at a certain point, those injuries have to have some kind of um, government protection or some kind of redress, something that in the system. Why would there be different moral norms mm -hmm. for speech than for for action. Right. So so you were swayed more by a kind of pragmatic. So were there data? The data would have convinced you. This could have been an empirical argument. If we knew what proportion of hate speech activities end in violence, and if we knew the relative frequency of hate-related violence in two cultures, one of which, you know, had a restrictive or punitive attitude towards forms of hate speech, if it resulted in a lower level of per capita violence, for you, this can be this can be formulated out not really as first principle moral norms, but as a as a pragmatic desire to reduce violence. Not quite. I would say I'm more sympathetic now than to to that than I was when I was younger. Mm -hmm. uh, I would i I do want to see the data, but I also recognize that. It's tricky to figure out causation with the best of data. Yeah. Right? Like 
if yes, there's a little bit less hate crime per capita in Australia, but it's a very different country, and I'm sure there's less hate crime from some states in the in the, in the U.S. than other states in the U.S. Um, and we're just more violent. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, but that uh, you know, measurably a more violent, more conflict based. We're six times more violent yes. than this other country, <laughs> and our and in terms of hate crimes, there's ten percent more hate crimes in the, in the U.S. Data does bear, I think, on the question. But first principles, I think, still have a serious place. So mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not completely towards the empirical right. If there's more violence, if there's less violence because of the of prohibitions on hate speech, I'll go with that. I'm not. I'm not ready to go all the way there. Right. Yet. Um, here's a question. Yeah. So, when you say that there is a first principle aspect to your uh, preference for a more American, you know, conception of speech rights versus. Uh, you know, the regulation of hate speech. Is it because you're worried at a certain point down the line, we're not going to know the difference or be able to draw the, you know, draw a meaningful enough distinction between, you know, publishing a communist broadsheet and hurling the N-word at a stranger in the street, right? That 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 is it a sort of a slippery slope argument where, you know, at some point you are going to have to draw the line between one and the other. Is it is it a definitional problem of not being able to take this one form of morally injurious speech connected to a history of, let's be honest, co- connected to a long history of violence and bodily violence and coercion um, and coordinate off from other kinds of speech which will be left unprotected? That That once you're on that slope, we'll get to the, you know, we're going to start with the N-word you know, uttered in anger between two strangers, but we're going to end up with you not being able to publish your communist broad street, a broadsheet. Is that kind of the first principle argument you're thinking of? It, it might be. Let me let me let let me um, describe a little bit of my thinking, and you tell me if it's more along the slippery slope line or what. Oh, and also I, yeah. Barry, quickly, sorry, one thing. There was a technical term used in the podcast, and I'm going to need you to flesh it out a little yeah. bit more. I don't have a background. I'm not yeah. trained in analytic philosophy, yeah. but it's ass whooping. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> there was a lot of you. You really yeah. liked saying ass whooping. Yeah. And it really got to the heart of the argument in a way that I, I love. Yeah, but. incitements to violence. I was I was interested in whether, why isn't it, you know, when somebody calls Sonny the N-word, <laughs> that was inciting him to, to be violent, because that's how he felt. Well, I love that idea, too, because typically what we think of is like some clan leader saying to his credulous followers things that then get them to commit, you know, acts of violence. But I love the idea that insulting someone in a certain kind of way actually is an attempt to incite violence, even though the violence may be against you, the speaker. That's right. Why is there a distinction there? You know, because the violence redounds to the you know speaker as opposed to a third party i thought i was missing something that why is there a distinction i thought i was missing something i said i'm sure there's an easy answer to this so i put it out to the philosophy friends and it's not there's no easy answer to it actually (laughs) it turns out it turns out well if there's an answer it's a fancy one yeah. You have to start coming up with, you know, fancy explanations as to why there's a difference there. Yeah, or really primitive ones. That's like, had it come in, you know, yeah, no, that's, yeah. that's interesting. But, that's but right. I interrupted yeah. you on a... Yeah, so, I, I, so to, to, to go back to that issue, I don't think of it as a slippery slope problem. The way that I think about it is a problem of comparing violations and... It's a weighing problem. One of the things that's nice about absolute principles is that an absolute principle doesn't admit of 
well, there's this much harm caused, and mm-hmm. when it hits a certain weight, yep. it counterweights the absolute principle. Yeah. If you're in, if you have absolute principles, whether it's about free speech or gun rights or whatever, no amount of data whatsoever is going to convince you that that right, that fundamental right you think you have, should be overturned for a greater public good. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right? It's just this non-utilitarian way of thinking. And I'm definitely not a non-utilitarian way, but then I I recognize the the very tricky the, the the just insurmountable difficulty of then answering the question. Then how do you weigh things, right? How do you weigh anything? How do you right? weigh I mean, anything? How do you weigh an injury to the honor of Sunny Sidhu? Yeah, with whatever it is that you're protecting when you're protecting a free speech right, and not to mention all of the areas in, of of human life in which we must negotiate a common reality with others, absent absolutist principles that were enshrined 200, 300 years ago by the founding fathers. Right? It's like obviously we can't have an infinite number of 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 absolute first principles that'll guide all of our actions. Human judgment and understanding can fall into disuse on the assumption that data or an absolutist principle can solve each and every instance of everything. So then it can flow the other way. Why not apply our, you know, highly refined capacity to draw judgments and distinctions to speech? Yeah, that's right. So when Jeff Howard says something like, um, when I see the Americans draw the line at incitements to violence, but that's imminent and, you know, whatever... I think even if you're a hardcore libertarian, you can say something like, yeah, there's something to the idea that that's an arbitrary line, right? Why does it have to be imminent? Why can't it be next week? Yeah. And that makes sense, right? But but it just turns out that the Americans drew a line in a certain place, yeah. right? And um, and that looks like they're weighing. They're weighing the value of autonomy versus the, you know, disvalue of whatever, uh, you know, violence and so on. One way to look at the Australian position is that we just drew it somewhere else. Right. Exactly right. Right. And yeah. we just and and um so so when he asks the question rhetorically, why have any lines at incitement to violence? Um, that's a rhetorical line. But I think if you were a genuine right free speech rights absolutist, I think that what I what I see is um that's a genuine question. Mm-hmm. Why did we draw the line at incitement to violence? We right. think people who act violently are responsible for their actions. Right. They made up their mind. We'll criminally punish them too, right? And then if you take a step back in the episode even further, threats yeah. are speech. Sure. Right? You didn't actually hit the person when you threatened. Oh, I loved, and you got at this with the wonderful, you know, married bachelor, right? It's like where fighting words aren't, don't even count as fighting words anymore, right? And that that the absolutism of free speech principle allows you to utter a completely, you know, uh, be th- threat-based, you know, make a threat-based gesture to someone, but it's not a fighting word. Yeah, it does. I mean, it really, I mean, that those kinds of examples, it really shows that Americans are pushing this 2003 case, I believe, where cross-burning was not an intimidation, yeah. racial intimidation. I mean, we really are pushing that even threats and intimidation our protected speech now, right? And, and, and I mean, I would be surprised, but it's possible that even incitements to violence will be, you know, things that we thought were paradigmatic cases of incitement aren't going to be incitement anymore, right? And, and, and this has a history, too. I mean, yeah. it's not as if the First Amendment has already always been read in an absolutist fashion. I mean, my shallow understanding of it is Oliver Wendell Holmes played a huge role in bringing about a modern 
and now our contemporary understanding of free speech rights as absolute or nearly absolute, but it's historical, historically contingent even within the framework of you know constitutional interpretation. Um, it's not like it's not like it's always been like this. Um, we were talking before the show about America seems right to question first principles um, in their governance, in their original documents. Some people might be. I don't see a trend against that, mm-hmm, no. I, I, at least on, this, on, on the free speech front. Um, maybe on the Second Amendment, probably not. I really think that there's going to be a bigger divergence between uh, countries like Australia, maybe even Canada mm-hmm. and the United Kingdom. We're seeing it playing out. We're seeing it play out at places like where we're sitting here and colleges. I think the younger generation really is much more sympathetic to mm-hmm. Australian positions than right. than, than I think um, we have than the country is in general. All right, I have a question. Yeah. W- I, w- w- am I right to have picked up a Kantian argument about autonomy to the extent that Kant has been read as a libertarian and put very simply, I mean, just simply the idea that, you know, the ability to impose upon oneself a kind of obedience um, uh, to princi- to our reasoned principles. And uh, someone was essentially saying the Australian system has a litigious aspect to it, right? It's not criminal, it's civil. You have to have been insulted in a certain way and then you have to bring a lawsuit against the person and then various determinations are made and an american style argument might be a semi-kantian argument which is really you know you you actually are more a morally undeveloped person if you can't in that instance inhibit your own tendency to reprisal especially violent reprisal when insulted in that way when you can't gather your wits and respond um, not in kind, not by returning an insult, by actually making an argument, by walking away, that in fact one develops the habits of being a morally mature human being because there isn't a court system that's gonna adjudicate the conflict that you're having, the ad hoc conflict that you're having with a person um, who happens to have called you a deeply, horribly, disgustingly ugly name. Funnily enough, the real world example sort of comes around to that point of view a little bit. Yeah, I thought that was one of the more fascinating things about. You, the, you mean when Sonny talked yeah, about it at the yeah. end? So, so describe that. What happened in that thing? Well, I mean, he's you know, after this yeah. wonderful explication. I mean, first of all, the story of what he went through is quite moving in a way. I mean, it's so specific. He's a very good storyteller. I'm sure he's told it many times, but it's a beautifully told story of series of events. As people who listen to the episode know, you coming to the moment where a brute calls you something absolutely disgusting and you've just had enough and how are you supposed to respond? And like almost anybody in his position, what he feels is a kind of primitive or even medieval sense of like my honor. I mean, he talks about it in terms like kind of, you know, very deeply felt sense of honor and face almost being lost in a way that demands a certain kind of response, but he's able to contain himself and he realizes that he has to respond in a more Calls the police. <laughs> yeah, essentially, but essentially which is, bring in the state, w- right? W- which is, which is, you're an immigrant. Like, at that point, I'm sure listeners are like, well, he's an immigrant. He does, he doesn't know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the police aren't going to do <laughs> yeah, anything. But, laugh, yeah. but, 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 right, but it's revealing of his of how he's thinking about it, right? The yes. system is here. Yeah, right. And, and yeah, and and what he repeatedly says is, you know, look. I did. It took everything I had not to respond violently. I mean, he he says essentially this guy has a 
a bullet coming to him um, where I'm from. You know, he sort of says this is this is just completely unacceptable behavior. And he has considerably more than just an ass whooping coming to the guy. And um, instead, he recurs to the legal system and finds that he does have uh, uh, some means of redress or whatever. And you would think that the moral of the story in the end would be, you know, I got my 2000, like I got the verdict, you know, in in open court publicly, this guy was proven wrong or, you know, he proven to have committed a moral injury against me for which I was given $2,000 victory. Right. And, and also by the way, as a presidential case. So he, as you say, has this sort of small claim on, on Australian history, legal history. Um, and he regrets it, which is just an incredible turn of events. Um, at the end of the day, he doesn't feel as though he regained whatever it was that he lost. And, as I remember, Barry, he sort of indicates that just walking away was probably the right. That's response. right. <laughs> That's right. Um, what's interesting is that it revealed to him that what he was looking for all along was an apology. Yeah. And he wanted the person to stop seeing him yeah. as an inferior individual. And that didn't happen. That's so funny because that's thinking about what human beings need at a primal and deep level that doesn't involve rights. You know, it's, it's this sense of being made to disappear into a group categorization uh, and then being demeaned according to to a kind of ultimate form of historical disesteem. And if someone apologizes to you, it's to you as an individual. They re-individuate you. They re-humanize you. They shouldn't have that power. But but the force of an apology um, that's delivered sincerely is a remarkable thing. And the law can't touch that in some sense, yeah. right? Which is fascinating because you were talking about Kantian notions of autonomy, right? Yeah. And what you're describing is genuine moral development, yeah, right? The kind of thing that, as an advocate of the American position would say, the law doesn't give you, yeah, right? The law cannot provide that for you, right? And the next step, the next premise is going to be, therefore, we shouldn't make the law provide you with anything short of that, right? right? I mean, that's a separate premise that you have to add. But I think one of the good points is that, um, right, one of the good point, one of the good points of that position is that, yeah, the law ultimately won't be able to provide, even if it was a criminal kind of case, the laws, like, if the guy arrest was arrested, um, would that have provided Sonny with the kind of redress that he wanted? Yeah. And probably not. Right? And we're talking about, what was he looking for? Moral development among the guy who called him the name. Yeah. And for himself to have the same kind of moral status that is restored to him that seemed to have been taken away from him. Yeah, that's right? a really good point. Now, can I make my argument on behalf of the Australian system sure. now that you've yeah. almost brought me around to the American one? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, via the unexpected uh, back road of Immanuel Kant. But so uh, this is just my own hobby horse. I'm curious whether you find its echo in the, in the episode. But, you know, my sense of, of, of the way in which Americans have articulated rights uh, and framed rights to themselves involves a notion of negative liberty and being left alone. And when you look at the Bill of Rights, um, that's essentially the way they're, most of them are framed. I mean, even the free speech right really is a way of preventing the government from doing something to you. Um, and they have a relatively, I think, relative to the Europeans, and now as I've discovered the Australians, a relatively underdeveloped notion of positive human rights, which themselves then often rest on something like a normative conception of what a human being is. And therefore, to violate the dignity of that is somehow so elementally wrong that, um, that that that's the basis upon which we're going to constrain speech or government action 
or and here's here's where the rubber hits my sort of road is um or the actions of of private actors and in america we so conceive of it in terms of negative liberty in which the two principal actors are the individual and the state with the built-in assumption that that private actors can't violate the dignity of, of, of human beings in quite the same way as the government can. And so the word you were using was libertarian. And my sense is that there's just built into the DNA of Americans at some level. I don't know how deep that level is. A tendency to regard private actors as ultimately benign and um, and in th- themselves as expressive of, of um, freedom in some respect. Whereas Europeans are much more careful to say, no, we're going to begin with this you know, notion of the dignified individual that can't be harmed by anybody under any circumstances, giving them leverage to be a far more socially democratic society than us. So I'm not sure where I begin in this argument. I suspect I begin with an intuition that a socially democratic society is a more free one and then try to reverse engineer um, from socially democratic societies to the first principles which involve a much more positively, uh, much, a, a much more healthy regime of positively articulated rights. Um, am I crazy? No, I, you know, as you were speaking, the thing that occurred to me is, what is it that an historian or a, a intellectual historian, what are they going to appeal to to explain why Americans are different in this way? Yeah. And one of the things that was occurring to me as you were speaking was, to put a charitable take on it, is to say that Americans might be conceived of as supremely optimistic that human flourishing is just going to follow from the um, from negative liberty, right? So if you, yep. as, as long as you, I mean, going back to the founding of this country, as long as you don't step on them in the wrong ways, it's just naturally going to follow that um, human flourishing is going to, we're going to have all of the positive liberties just from the, right, from not having the yep. state step on this negative liberty. That's a charitable way of putting it, right? Yeah. I don't know if that is a empirical point or if it's a like a conceptual point or, or just something deeply seated, but that's got to be it. That's got to be the charitable interpretation of what it is. Okay, let right? me give you the flip side of okay. that. That, in fact, we're deeply pessimistic and skeptic, skeptical about um human beings in a highly pluralistic society being forced to live with one another. And therefore, we feel as though unless we have a certain set of very limited absolutist principles that will inspire total consent among absolutely everybody, uh, there's no way we won't descend into sectarian violence and conflict. Therefore, we have to have rules that cover absolutely all cases universally without any individual ever having to exercise their moral judgment in order to apply them. And so we've got these gigantic ones. And if we didn't, we'd just be at each other's throats all the time. Gosh, gosh. I don't know. I don't know how to, I don't know what to choose. I mean, like the optimistic American position or the pessimistic one. I mean, it's going to have as a consequence what we see. Right. Yeah. Right. We're not going to move towards any Australian position. In fact, we're pushing against it. Yep. And uh, with respect to the right to bear arms, we see that play out. Right. Um, there's no freedom from getting shot, even. Right? Exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Boy. Okay. So as a as a co- professor at a liberal arts college, yeah. I mean, there's this microcosmic way in which certain kinds of um, prohibitions on uh, on speech do get enacted on college campuses. I mean, certainly those instances have been magnified by demagogic right-wingers who want to, you know, portray it as some horrible, you know, anti-speech 
crusade. But um, there has to be line drawing, judgmental line drawing of all kinds, all the time on a on an instance by instance basis, on a principled and general basis, on a college campus. Uh, you know, in your encounters with that, do you find ways to expand out to the macrocosm of the society at large, or is or is a in other words, do you see how it plays out on a college campus, and that gives you some guidance for how it might be enshrined more, you know, three, two, one, sorry, how it might be more applicable more widely to the society at a whole, as a whole, or just faster, so exceptional in the, you know, um, so exceptional as an institution that you couldn't possibly take a campus free speech code and find some way to become less of an absolutist. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very difficult question. Um, Here's one way to here, here's one way to think about it. Um, I s- ascribe to the position that institutions of learning should have wider protections, mm-hmm. even if you were in a society like uh, Australia or Canada or Germany that has hate speech prohibitions. Institutions of learning should have wider. It should be more inclusive of speech. Uh, than than the white general society, so it's actually the opposite of what people That's claim. So and the reason why is that institutions of higher learning should be a place. We should have the assumption that even the most controversial views are being offered as a good faith effort and as a sincere belief mm-hmm. that um, requires evidence for or against and so on. And because I think every country everywhere should have an institution that has that. There should be an institution that is particularly propitious, as one of my um, guests say, propitious for learning, for counter-argument, and so on. Mm -hmm. Now, should that be everywhere? I think that's the question of the episode, right? Right. But but I think in institutions of higher learning, it should, like these are the places where you should have wider protections for free speech because those are the institutions in which ideas are being hashed out. That's what we built them as. Yeah. So I, I am disheartened when students feel that the mere existence of a forum somewhere on campus where some ideas are discussed, even if they are disgusting, um, are offensive enough to prohibit them on the campus at large. Right. I, I, do, I, do, I do find that troubling because I think that we want an institution in the culture for that to be possible. But that's not to say that the grievances that individuals have towards offensive speech are not legitimate. Mm-hmm. And right. I think that in the general society, um, the existence of that kind of speech in arenas that are not particularly propitious for <laughs> for intellectual debate, really, like a, a lot of internet and social media, it's, it's not there for debate. It's there to insult people and make yes. people feel like shit. Yep. And, you know, we're both on Twitter. Um, and, yep. and, and, you know, Twitter's not even the worst. Um, so quite frankly, you know, I have sort of the opposite view of a lot of students in the general society. I think it's okay to have, um, spaces where, you know, censorship's not the right word where certain kinds of speeches are just not allowed because it's only there to, to hurt people. It's not a place that people are going to learn from at the institution of higher learning. I think we have reserved this space for that. What about, um, and I know this is going down a slightly different rabbit hole, but, you know, there are professional pr- provocateurs and there's an industry of right-wing provocation um, that could be argued a priori is um, actually inimical to free speech, that it actually isn't about reason debate. And the whole game is really to get 
what they perceive of as the liberal intelligentsia to seize up like a you know jellyfish that's been poked and act spastically in response in order to then make a free speech claim, even though what they were presenting in the first instance really wasn't good faith. A, a, a good faith yeah, exactly. Set of reasoned ideas. They weren't going to engage in a reasoned discourse to begin with. Is that a judgment that a campus administrator can make ahead of time or you just got to let it play out? Oh, wow. Um, they have made it. You know, University of Chicago has one kind of system where they have made ahead of time a priori that that kind of speech will be permitted. And they are essentially respecting listener autonomy, right? Mm-hmm. You make up yeah. the, the individuals who have decided that they're going to be provoked have are responsible for that provocation because yep. we're respecting their, their autonomy. Um, and other institutions have made uh, different decisions, and they've made those those decisions based on utilitarian considerations, right? They've said, well, given the amount of violence that we expect, you know, whatever value that this kind of speech is going to provide, it's just not worth that kind of violence. The violence is real at places like certain places like Berkeley and Middlebury. It's It's been documented. Um, it's not widespread at all. You know, we know that. Um, but I think it speaks back to this question that you had, or this comment you had about Kantian autonomy. Is it a respect of individuals' autonomy, like as the administrators at Chicago? Um, and I think one of the things that is worth thinking about, and I don't know the answer to it, is whether or not speech of this kind is genuinely conducive to an expression of an individual's autonomy. The speakers, the hate yeah, speakers. The hate speakers are reducing Own autonomy. Us. Yeah. And and also the listeners, right? Well, like, that's, we, yeah, 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 right. You know, it can have a severely inhibiting effect on the recipient of hate speech's ability to speak, right? I mean, you can disable a person's capacity to freely and openly express themselves by using a kind of language that is arguably itself a form of, of violence. I mean, this gets back to the earlier point is that I kept thinking as I was listening to the episode, certain forms of speech strike me as being so close to a form of psychic, I mean, they are a form of psychic violence that the distinction between psychic and physical violence seems to me a relatively meaningless one. And, um, and it just brought me back to the idea that if you could only get Americans to look their own history in the face on a consensual enough basis and have them agree that the N-word, you know, and half a dozen other words or however many there are, belong to a special category of speech thanks to their attachment to history. They've never detached from that history. To be used in a certain way is to invoke that history and psychically injure the person that you're talking to. Therefore, the, the... boundary can be placed around them and all of our other near absolutist protections of free speech don't really uh, touch upon our ability to interdict or 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 restrict them um, but the first problem is getting Americans to agree consensually that that's what the history tells us yeah. they can't agree so I that's where I come back yeah. to the idea of well that's really the issue is we're so suspicious of our fellow citizens ability to see rea- a common reality in a common way that we have to either have an absolutist principle that we'll all agree to and in every case I mean it, it never turns out in every case but but we can at least pretend that in every case can be applied almost algorithmically yeah. or we're just fighting a civil war. Yeah, yeah. And I'm actually curious um, when it comes to the judgment of the judges, right, yeah. on the Supreme Court, what they're really thinking. 
if they're thinking that they just have a job to do and they're following the principles of occupational obligation, or if they really, you know, in the background, they can recognize the assumption that they're making assumptions like that you're making yeah. or the optimistic assumption or, or, or something like that. Well, if we, I think you, um, in, in the last segment, I think you had some questions you wanted to ask me about putting together the, the show and oh, the yeah, episode. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so in the same way, I always wonder whether people begin with uh, first principles or argue back to them from their preferred outcomes. I'm wondering where you start when you put an episode. Do you begin with a question uh, or an instance? Um, do you begin with the real world you know, person and the conflict and you're like, this raises some very in f interesting philosophical issues. Um, uh, which way do you usually go or is it? More typically, it starts with the idea. Yeah. So um, I interviewed Jeff Howard maybe a couple of years ago. Oh, okay. And um, and it was a, you know, he he he's in Britain. He's an American, but he's in Britain, and he has this position that um, the way that Europeans and British and Australians do it um, is the is the better way. And he had these moral arguments, and I and I and I kept that there, and um, didn't have the right story. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't have the right story until I visited Australia last last summer, winter, down under. And I also, by that time, I had interviewed Shauna Schifrin, who, um, whose position is closer to the American position, right? Mm -hmm. um, so starting from those ideas, I knew that I needed something, a, a real-life example where you're right at the boundaries when I went down to Australia, I, I, I noticed that in recent months, there had been a debate countrywide about whether this particular prohibition on hate speech should be repealed. And it's the debate looks just like in America, right? You have sort of their version of the Republican Party or the Tories arguing that it's going it's led the government down this slippery slope to, you know, preventing, you know, white people from even saying something like maybe affirmative action shouldn't be allowed or so on and so forth. <laughs> and um, and then it turned out, I found out, you know, 78% of Australians like the law. Amazing. Right? And that, so, could you imagine 78% of Americans approving of anything? Anything, yeah. Right? And so, um, and so I l looked into Australian case law and tried to find the right example and there he was. Sonny was in Australian case law. And I found him. We met in some strange little town, which was two and a half hours from Canberra and Sydney. I got off the train there. It was the middle of winter, so it was freezing. We we, we went for tea off in some hotel we walked into um, for about an hour and a half. And after that was done, I had to sit at the train station for another three hours, <laughs> you know, to take the train back. And just so I can get that one little story. Yeah, he was a good storyteller, though. It was worth it, you know. He's told his own story with such clarity, and uh, it was great. Yeah, and uh, it's funny because um, just so we'll end up here. Um, the favorite section that my wife really liked was when I told Sonny that for, uh, hate speech was protected, and he didn't understand what that meant in America. Mm. And then there's this little section of the episode, I don't know if you remember, where Sonny said he was so shocked that there was no redressal for this kind of speech in America. Yeah. And he's talked about how, I guess it's just not a great country, not this great yeah, country. Not the, not the t country I saw on TV. Yeah. yeah. Which is how they view the United States and Australia. They know all about our politics and they respect the hell out of it. I mean, you were there, right? Yeah. No, it's incredible. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. Both times I was there, uh, American news stories, political stories led the news. 
um, in Australia. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Well, I think we're um, that's our Slate Plus segment. Stephen, thank you for talking some philosophy with me. Barry, anytime, man. Okay. Thank you so much. All I... right. We're going to be back for a couple more of these over the course of the season. <laughs>